ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the audio edition of the Weekly Roundup, where we examine some of the major headlines and developments pertaining to the asset and wealth management industry across Hong Kong, Singapore and mainland China. This episode we are looking at developments over the week of April 5 through April 9, so let's dive in. Starting down in Singapore, as part of its objective to have 1 million customers insured and invested by 2023, DBS, a Singapore bank, is beefing up its digital investment advisor to assist retail clients in making better investment decisions, as reported by Fine News Asia. The enhancements to the digital advisor aim to provide specific recommendations based on a customer's profile and provide a real-time experience for clients. The move comes as DBS believes that only 20% of retail customers made investments over the previous year, and that only 10% of new investors would complete their investing journey. Despite these low rates of investing, DBS notes that customers are increasingly taking a self-directed approach to their investments via digital channels, and that their new features would aid clients in meeting regulatory requirements before investing. As digital platforms and programs grow in their reach and applicability across APAC's asset and wealth management industry, and which COVID-19 has exacerbated, sound digital offerings are becoming a must-have for traditional lenders and fintechs alike. And most banks in Singapore and across the region are investing in improving their capabilities in this space. On that note, Ignites Asia reports that following the announcement from Endowas, a Singapore-based robo-advisory platform covered in a previous episode, Stashaway, another Singapore-based robo-advisory platform, is launching its actively managed ETF robo-advisory platform in Hong Kong, a market where independent asset and wealth management platforms have struggled to gain traction in the face of banks' dominance in distribution. Stashaway, which recently passed $1 billion US dollars in AUM, launched in 2016, and operates in Singapore, Malaysia, and Dubai, and will be offering its US-listed ETFs to retail and professional investors in Hong Kong as it enters that market, with high-net-worth individuals a particular target. Despite the robo-advisory and digital wealth space growing in Singapore, it has not had the same success in Hong Kong, which the head of Stashaway Hong Kong, Stephanie Leung, attributes to a, quote, lack of very interesting products, end quote, which includes those that have high levels of transparency and low fees, with annual management fees of between 0.2% to 0.8%, Stashaway's fees appear to reflect their competitors in Hong Kong, though they may face increased competition from traditional banks, who have long held the keys to product distribution in the Fragrant Harbour, and who have been investing in digital asset and wealth management offerings with HSBC and Citibank seeing strong growth in this area. To grow its presence, Ms. Leung states that Stashaway will apply the educational and marketing approaches that have seen it grow its market share across its existing territories. Time will tell whether this approach will pay dividends or whether banks will maintain their iron grip on product distribution in Hong Kong. Next up, United Overseas Bank, a Singaporean bank, 
has raised 1.5 billion US dollars from its first sustainability bond, as reported by Wealth Briefing Asia. The US dollar denominated bond saw comprehensive uptake from investors across Asia, Europe, and the US, according to UOB. The final order book for the bond stood at 2.75 billion US dollars, and investors focused on sustainability comprised 60% of the final set of orders. This launch follows MAS's launching of a green and sustainability-linked loan grant scheme, which began in January 2021, and BNP Paribas and OCBC, a French and Singaporean bank respectively, along with UOB, have introduced loan frameworks under that initiative. The sustainability bond is the first issued under UOB's sustainable bond framework, which was launched in March 2021. This framework was developed in order to reinforce UOB's capabilities in financing green and social projects which contribute towards the UN's sustainable development goals. Proceeds of bonds issued under this framework must be utilized towards specific green or social categories. Moving up to Hong Kong. Six months following Hong Kong's SFC's proposed climate risk disclosure rules, the asset and wealth management industry is pushing back against the proposals and seeking greater clarity on their practical implications, as reported by Ignites Asia. The rules, announced in October 2020, request Hong Kong asset managers to incorporate climate factors into their investment and risk management process, in line with other green and sustainable finance initiatives launched in the territory. Substantial feedback from industry bodies and participants centered around requesting more practical details to assist in execution of the rules, and some asset managers are pushing back against them entirely. Several questions abound, such as whether the disclosures apply to the asset manager or just funds and portfolio companies, how disclosures should be applied across different kinds of strategies, whether they are subject to client requirements, and if so, how, and how the fund board can incorporate the disclosures into their daily operations. With asset managers expected to transition to the disclosures within 12 months for small asset managers and between 9 to 12 months for large asset managers, it is uncertain whether or when the SFC will finalize the disclosures or have another round of consultation. Next up, Wellington Management, a Boston-based asset manager, is planning to increase its headcount in Asia by 20% over 2021, as it looks to seize on rising regional affluence, particularly in China, as reported by the South China Morning Post. Citing Asia as its fastest growing market and their bullish view on China, Wellington is looking to step up its operations and engagement across the region, where it already employs over 300 people and manages circa 140 billion US dollars in client assets. It is also looking to deploy, quote, more and more of our resources, end quote, according to the head of Wellington's APAC client group, Scott Gary. In China, Wellington received a PFM Wuffy license in 2019 and opened an office in Shanghai last year, where it hopes to launch QDLP products later on in 2021. Wellington also remains, quote, fully committed, end quote, to Hong Kong and plans to expand into retail fund distribution in the territory, as well as leveraging the Wealth Management Connect program once it launches. In contrast to this, Vanguard, a US asset manager, 
has announced plans to delist its Hong Kong ETFs, officially ending its seven-year-old ETF business in Hong Kong as reported by Ignites Asia. May 10, 2021 will be the final trading day for the six ETF products listed in Hong Kong, with discussions to transfer the funds to another asset manager apparently amounting to naught. This follows Vanguard's announcement to withdraw from Hong Kong's mandatory Provident Fund business in August 2020, along with other APAC markets, to focus their efforts and energies on China and their investment advisory joint venture with Ant Financial and their application for a retail fund management woofie, which as noted in a previous episode, they recently withdrew their application for. What Vanguard's APAC presence looks like in the coming months and years, and if they even have a substantial presence, will be watched with avid interest. And now for China. The treatment of debt held by foreign creditors pertaining to Peking University Founder Group, a state-backed conglomerate with political ties in China, on the largest default of dollar-denominated Chinese debt in nearly two decades, hinges on the decision of a Beijing court, as reported by the Financial Times. The group owes circa 1.6 billion US dollars in notes and has already defaulted on 36.5 billion renminbi in onshore notes, according to Standard & Poor's and Wind Financial respectively, and an expected court ruling regarding the treatment of foreign bondholders is being keenly watched. Foreign investors are estimated to hold 82 billion US dollars in Keepwell deeds, essentially commitments made by bond issuers' parent companies to maintain the financial strength of an offshore subsidiary to meet repayment obligations to foreign creditors. These deeds are, in the words of Fitch Ratings, quote, essentially a strongly worded letter of comfort, end quote, for the foreign creditors and do not create a debt liability for the parent companies of bond issuers. Due to concern that the court will not recognize the debts, two legal challenges have been launched in Hong Kong to liquidate a subsidiary of PUFG, and Simmons & Simmons, a law firm, notes that an earlier claim made under a Keepwell deed has been rejected by PUFG's bankruptcy administrator in China as their validity had not been established in that jurisdiction. If the court in Beijing deems that creditors with claims via a Keepwell deed have valid claims, overseas investors will no doubt take comfort from the knowledge that their claims will be easier to enforce in future. Sans such a ruling, foreign creditors may shy away from such arrangements in future, given their lack of certainty in having their claims recognized. Looking at updates and developments in China's fund market, following a strong 2020, in which over 3 trillion renminbi was raised in new fund IPOs, and a promising first quarter of 2021, in which over a trillion renminbi was raised, the allure of investing in funds may be wearing off, as in March, no newly launched funds completed their IPO targets in one day, as opposed to 39 in January and 20 in February, as reported by Fund Selector Asia, citing data from Ceruli. Bond funds appear to be bucking the trend though, with over half of all bond funds in China either implementing subscription limits or halting subscriptions completely as investors shift assets into them to protect against a stock market correction. Despite the downturn, many Chinese fund management companies are optimistic that fundraising will increase once general market sentiment improves, and are taking the opportunity to educate investors who may not have experienced many market cycles before. 
Should a bear market eventuate, the long-term outlook may sour though. In spite of this outlook, foreign asset managers are likely to continue to be attracted to the market, and the rise in profitability among many Sino-Foreign Fund Management Company joint ventures is likely to reinforce that, with numerous FMCJVs, including those of Schroeder's, Allianz Global Investors, and Aegon, recording profit growth in excess of 100% over 2020, though conversely, many FMCJVs failed to substantially grow their profits despite the bull market. In total, 12 fund management companies reported profits in excess of 10 billion RMB from 2020. Finally, in updates to China's fund management market, following Beijing's pledge to transition to a zero-carbon emission economy by 2060, five new carbon-neutral funds are preparing for launch, with two of them being ETFs, and are expected to add to a product space which has increasing numbers of green and sustainable finance-focused products, and where ESG funds have reached AUM of 21 billion US dollars over 2020. As covered in an earlier episode, Goldman Sachs estimates China needs 16 trillion US dollars in investment to meet its carbon goals, so the industry can expect increased numbers of similar fund launches in the near future. Next up, Fund Selector Asia reports that QDII issuance in March nearly reached 9 billion US dollars across 11 firms. The wealth management arms of Chinese banks were the main recipients of this round, with four such units receiving a combined 6.1 billion US dollars in QDII quota. Of the four units, Bank of China, ICBC, China Merchants Bank, and Bank of Hangzhou, all have relationships or ties to foreign asset and wealth managers who they may look to partner with to launch overseas products. Following JP Morgan's investment in China Merchants Bank, they may certainly be expecting that, though the sheer size of quota issued may mean there are opportunities for other asset and wealth managers should they offer the right products or investment strategies. Next up, following the issuance of just over 9 billion US dollars in QDII quota in January, the amount of quota issued in 2021 to date already exceeds the circa 13 billion US dollars issued over 2020. It had previously been reported that China expected to launch circa 10 billion US dollars in QDII quota annually, with quarterly grants of between 2 to 3 billion US dollars, though the original claims of this were removed from the source. The massive issuance in 2021 already smashes the 10 billion US dollar limit, and may be in response to a stronger renminbi against the US dollar, which has led to regulators promoting foreign exchange outflows among corporates and investors in ways which will not trigger a depreciation of the renminbi. At the same time, authorities are now dealing with significant capital inflows into China. Foreign holdings of Chinese equities in particular grew substantially over 2020, and the perceived risks to financial stability this entails. This view is reflected in comments made by the head of CSRC, Yi Huiman, in a recent speech at the China Development Forum. Mr. Yi stated that large inflows of, quote, hot money, end quote, could endanger the healthy development of a market and must be controlled, before adding that normal cross-border flows are encouraged and that foreign investors only account for less than 5% of China's entire stock market capitalization, which is below the level in developed markets. In addition to a surge in QDII quota, 
10 billion US dollars in QDLP quota has been granted to Guangdong, excluding Shenzhen and Jiangsu provinces, with each province receiving 5 billion US dollars each. This bout of QDLP issuance follows Beijing and Shanghai, each receiving 10 billion US dollars in QDLP quota, and Shenzhen, Chongqing, and Hainan receiving 5 billion US dollars in QDLP quota in 2020. Whilst the majority of QDLP has been issued to Shanghai and Beijing, which corresponds to the concentration of QDLP woofies in these centres, the new quota issuance could relate to other investment initiatives across China, with the Shenzhen and Guangdong issuance relating to the Wealth Management Connect and strong alternative asset management industry across that region. The Hainan issuance could pertain to recent developments to promote that island as a fund management centre. The Chongqing issuance could correspond to the Singapore-Chongqing New International Land-Sea Trade Corridor, and Jiangsu's quota issuance could relate to its position in the Yangtze River Delta Economic Zone. As Chinese regulators deal with increased activity from foreign asset and wealth managers establishing onshore operations, foreign investors increasing their holdings of Chinese securities, and Chinese investors increasingly looking to increase their offshore investment options, it will be interesting to see how these competing factors play out against the overarching goal of promoting capital stability and avoiding hot money flooding into and out of China's capital markets. On the subject of Hainan, as reported by Caixin, in addition to receiving 5 billion US dollars of QDLP quota, Chinese financial regulators have issued guidelines pertaining to the further development and opening up of Hainan's financial services sector. These guidelines follow the announcement in June 2020 to develop Hainan over 15 years and make it a, quote, internationally influential high-level port by 2050, end quote, along with Chinese President Xi Jinping's announcement to build Hainan into a free trade port made back in April 2018. The guidelines include 37 pilot measures to help achieve this goal. As per the newly issued guidelines, foreigners would be able to invest in wealth management products issued by financial institutions within the Hainan Freeport area, along with private equity asset management products issued by securities and futures companies, public offering securities investment funds, and insurance asset management products. Additionally, the Hainan Freeport area will be included in the QDLP and QFLP pilot program, which will make it easier for foreign investors to access Chinese investments and for Chinese investors to invest in foreign assets. Next up, Fund Selector Asia reports that, following its QDLP license issuance in November last year, PIMCO, a US asset manager, has launched its first QDLP product, a feeder fund which focuses on global fixed income investments in public and private credit markets. PIMCO will reportedly rely on domestic banks and wealth managers to promote and distribute the product, and sees value in developing their onshore presence to expand their engagement and reach with stakeholders across the onshore market. This continues a recent trend of QDLP woofies launching products in China, which could be seen as an indication of the increasing demand for overseas investments among qualified Chinese investors, and brings the aggregate QDLP product landscape to an estimated 46 products launched by 32 QDLP woofies. Also in the foreign asset and wealth managers in China space, the fund management company joint venture partner of Morgan Stanley, a US bank, China Fortune Securities, 
has secured regulatory approval to sell its 36% stake in the fund management company joint venture, which opens the way for Morgan Stanley to increase its holdings to 85%, up from 49% currently, as reported by Ignites Asia. It was announced that the stake would be sold for at least 388 million renminbi, circa 60 million US dollars. As of 31 March 2021, the FMC had assets under management of just over 35 billion renminbi, mostly from bond funds, and recorded a profit of 9 million renminbi in 2020, according to data sources. So the minimum purchase price represents just over 3% of AUM for the fund management company. This contrasts to a previous transaction, whereby Morgan Stanley paid a rate of 6.26% of AUM to increase their stake by over 2.2%. The actual purchase price may change, though when JP Morgan increased their stake, the minimum price for the stake was 241 million renminbi, and the final price was 241.3 million renminbi, so it may not stray too far from what has been signalled. Should Morgan Stanley acquire the stake, they will still have other shareholders to deal with, who previously prevented Morgan Stanley from holding over 51% of the FMC joint venture by injecting additional capital into the JV, and it is currently uncertain as to whether Morgan Stanley would pursue 100% ownership of the FMC joint venture, like JP Morgan did, or contend themselves with being the majority shareholder. Finally, Caixin reports that Chinese investors still overwhelmingly choose property as their main asset, accounting for nearly 65% of investments, though its proportion has fallen since the start of the millennium, when it neared 80%. Despite this dominance, the portion of investments held in financial assets has been gradually increasing, and they amounted to nearly 33% by 2019, up from under 20% in 2004. Within financial assets, bank deposits were the highest category, followed by bank wealth management products and shares. Housing's dominance is generally seen as the result of several factors, namely rapid urbanization and excessive liquidity pushing up house prices, restrictive cross-border capital controls, and relatively underdeveloped financial markets. Additionally, many Chinese investors are locked out of financial products from brokerages and trust companies, among others, due to high minimum buy-in requirements. Despite this, the growth of allocations towards financial assets bodes well for the development of China's financial system and for investors alike. The growth in these assets is generally attributed to China's aging population, which as seen in the USA and Japan generally translates to a decrease in allocations towards housing assets, and financial market reforms which have seen the range of products available to investors increase since 2010. With bank deposits in China amounting to 33.7 trillion US dollars at the end of 2020, according to data from CEIC, the attraction for foreign and domestic asset and wealth managers alike to convert this to non-cash financial products is substantial. Finally, in APAC-wide news, Amundi, the French asset manager, is nearing an agreement to buy Luxor Asset Management, the asset management arm of Societe Generale, a French bank, which could boost its business across APAC as reported by Ignites Asia. Amundi recently announced that it had entered into an exclusive arrangement to negotiate the acquisition 
of Luxor for nearly 1 billion US dollars. In doing so, Amundi appears to have outmaneuvered several other potential suitors, and the deal is expected to be finalized by February 2022, subject to regulatory approval. Given the divergent paths the two asset managers have taken, with Luxor withdrawing its retail products from APAC markets and exiting its China fund management company joint venture in 2017 to focus on institutional investors in the region and Amundi's strong engagement with China, the acquisition, if successful, could prove a good move with strong complementary benefits, particularly in the ETF space where Luxor is one of the largest ETF providers in Europe and with this product gaining traction among APAC investors. So, there we have it for the week of April 5 through 9. Certainly the increased investment in digital by DBS and how Stashaway is aiming to make a splash in Hong Kong is quite interesting, especially with Stashaway looking to target high net worth individuals with an ETF platform. It will be interesting to see what the take up among that investor segment is. For China, certainly the released guidelines on Hainan's future and the potential roadmap being laid out for it to develop into a new fund and wealth management center is interesting to see, particularly where they're also increasing QDLP quota grants. It will also be interesting to see whether or not Morgan Stanley takes the opportunity to increase its shareholding in its fund management company joint venture. We would certainly expect them to do so, but time will tell. And in regional news, whether Amundi is able to finalize the acquisition of Luxor Asset Management and really strengthen its operations across Asia could be quite interesting, and particularly if it goes through, we'll see how that acquisition plays out in the coming years. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, do leave a like, share, and comment below as to your thoughts on these developments or if there were any developments that we missed that you think we should have included. If you didn't enjoy this episode, Thank you for sticking around this long, and let us know your thoughts as to what we should cover in future. From Three Lions AWM Advisory, thank you for joining. We hope you stop by next time.